Hello, and welcome to Teen Scientist on WDIY. My name is Raina Malhotra, your host tonight. Here on the show, I bring you all stories from teenage perspectives, specifically in the science, technology, engineering, and math disciplines. The program highlights groundbreaking STEM stories from around the world with young people and respected experts in their fields. Today, I have the privilege of hosting a distinguished guest, Dr. Mark Saltzman, a renowned professor of biomedical and chemical engineering at Yale University. With his expertise in these fields, Professor Saltzman has made significant contributions to research in drug delivery, tissue engineering, and biomaterials. Welcome, Dr. Salzman. How are you? I'm very well, Raina. Thank you for having me. And thank you for joining us. As someone who is very interested in tissue engineering and drug delivery myself, I think this conversation will be really cool to learn more about you and your work. So thank you so much for joining us. Before we jump in, I want to learn a little bit more about you. So can you just tell me a little bit about your background and your education? Sure, I'd be happy to. I um, I grew up in Iowa, in central Iowa, and uh, went to public school there. And uh, when I decided to go to college, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. So I, I went to a local university called Drake University and studied uh, biology for my freshman year. But I, I realized during that first year that the classes that I enjoyed the most, that that were the easiest for me to study for were chemistry and physics and mathematics. I liked biology, but the other things seemed to come easier. So I switched universities and went to Iowa State University where I could study engineering and got a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering. That was a really good experience for me because an undergraduate education in engineering teaches you how to solve problems. That's what it's all about and gives you the tools that you need, mathematical tools and basic science understanding that lets you solve complicated problems. And that is really what I enjoyed doing. So um, I also had the experience of doing an internship one summer at a food company where lots of chemical engineers worked developing processes that are fascinating. But I, I didn't really see a career in chemical engineering that way as one for me. So I kind of tried to combine my early interest in medicine and my now skill at engineering by looking for graduate programs where I could study uh, biomedical engineering. Interesting. And did you know from a really young age that pursuing STEM and engineering was something that you wanted to do, like even as a kid? I don't think I did know that. I didn't, you know, my parents were not scientists. There wasn't really examples of that in my family. So I don't know where it came from <laughs> entirely. I think, uh, as, I, as I said, I did, those were the classes that I just sort of gravitated to as a child and uh, that were always the most stimulating for me, particularly when I started to study chemistry, you know, the, just the atomic theory and the way that molecules come together to form different kinds of substances. Just, uh, that just amazed me. And you couldn't see any of it. <laughs> it's remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool aspect of chemistry that I think is quite fascinating, too. Um, yeah. You've had quite an exciting career so far. So can you just briefly walk us through, you know, the timeline starting from after your undergrad until where you are now? You know, where have you worked and what kind of projects have you been gravitating towards? Yeah. So um, when I realized, you know, a conventional career in chemical engineering wasn't going to be right for me, I started looking, as, as I mentioned, for places where I could combine engineering and medicine. And I, I discovered this graduate program at MIT, which was really new at the time, in a program called the Health Sciences and Technology Program, which was jointly administered by Harvard and MIT. 
And there you could study engineering at MIT and study medicine at Harvard Medical School. And um, I was lucky enough to get accepted into the program and spent uh, six very challenging but very rewarding years learning about advanced uh, engineering and uh, learning about uh, medicine and clinical medicine. And, and it really that joint program really set me up very well for the work that I've done since then. So I, I left there with my PhD. I had a wonderful experience uh, working in the laboratory of Robert Langer, who is uh, my mentor and really changed my life in all sorts of different ways and got a job teaching chemical engineering as a professor at uh, Johns Hopkins. I was there for a number of years and then I moved to uh, Ithaca, New York, and I was a professor of chemical engineering at Cornell University. And then finally, about 20 years ago, I came to Yale and where I accepted my present position. And all those places were terrific places to do research, fabulous colleagues, tremendous smart students. So I've been lucky to you know, have a research program that has now spanned about 35 years at those three institutions. Wow. It seems like you definitely, you know, kept yourself busy over the years and had quite a journey going on. Do you remember what it was that initially sparked your interest in the fields of medical engineering and biotechnologies? Was there like a specific memory or story that, you know, you think kind of pushed you over the edge and convinced you to pursue this as a career? In my final year of uh, undergraduate work at studying chemical engineering, we had a what was called sort of the senior seminar where faculty members would come in and talk about their work and what they saw as possibilities for the future, what things you could do with chemical engineering as a training. And Richard Seagrave was one of the professors uh, there at the time. And, and he gave this fascinating lecture about the body, the human body, and related all the organs in the body to things that we studied as chemical engineers. So the heart obviously is a pump, but the kidney has this incredibly sophisticated filtration and recovery system. And, you know, these are the kind of processes that chemical engineers, you know, try to develop for, for industry or for laboratories. But to think about the human kidney, this complexity is something that a chemical engineer could understand or even replicate. And uh, he gave the example of kidney dialysis, which is, you know, one of the marvels of uh, modern medicine we take uh, for granted now, but it was really developed by physicians working with chemical engineers. And that really, you know, I remember that lecture, which was 40 some years ago, and I knew that was what I wanted to do. Wow, well, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I now want to transition to talk about some of the incredible work that's actually going on in your research group at Yale, starting off with your work in the field of drug delivery. So firstly, for our listeners who aren't really familiar, can you start off by explaining why efficient drug delivery and treatments are really important to the fields of medicine in, you know, this new age of research? Yeah, I think that the best example of that, the one that people will uh, understand is chemotherapy for treating cancer. You know, everybody knows something about this. If, you know, examples from their families or their friends, and they'll know a couple of things. One, that chemotherapy has been remarkable in prolonging the life of people that have uh, deadly cancers but that has come at a cost. And the cost is that most of the chemotherapy drugs have very bad side effects that make them, in some cases, difficult for patients with cancer to tolerate. And so one of the main goals of drug delivery is to try to develop engineering systems where you can more efficiently deliver drugs to promote their effectiveness 
but also to promote their safety. And the example I'll start with is one that I started working on when I was a PhD student and continued when I was at Johns Hopkins, and that's the idea of using materials to treat brain cancer. And brain tumors are unique in that they're in the brain, and they tend not to migrate to other parts of the body. So you would think if it's a tumor that stays in one place, then you should be able to treat it more effectively because it's the migration of tumor cells to other organs and other parts of the tissue that can be the most deadly. So it's been a surprise for a long time that surgery to remove a brain tumor is uh, only effective over a short time and those tumors always come back. So we had the idea, and this was uh, with my uh, advisor, uh, Bob Langer, who I mentioned earlier, to design materials that neurosurgeons could use that would have chemotherapy drugs embedded in them. And when the neurosurgeon does a tumor resection, takes out the tumor, he puts these materials, which were sort of dime-sized wafers, back into the tumor resection cavity. And when they're placed there, they slowly release chemotherapy. And they're releasing chemotherapy right at the site where you know the tumor is. So you don't get the side effects of chemotherapy drugs that you would normally see because you're placing it in the tumor and not flooding the whole body with chemotherapy. So you don't see a loss of bone marrow, uh, killing of bone marrow cells and, and the bad effects that come from uh, not having uh, your blood cells replaced. So that was one of the first, you know, real translational projects that I worked on starting in the sort of late 1980s, and we're still continuing to try to innovate in that area. And can you explain for that project that you talked about what the, you know, experimental setup or methodology you employed to evaluate the effectiveness of these materials were, and what were the big outcomes of your work? Yeah, so uh, that project I just talked about led to a to a commercial product that was called Gliadel, the Gliadel wafer. And that's this degradable polymer wafer that contains a chemotherapy agent, and it's placed by the surgeon in the surgical resection cavity. So that was approved by the FDA in 1996 and helped uh, extend the lives of many people with uh, glioblastoma. But it's not perfect, and while it extends life, it's not a cure for glioblastoma. And one of the things we learned was that even though you're delivering drugs directly at the site of a tumor, the drugs don't penetrate very far in the brain. You get very high concentrations locally, but the drug doesn't penetrate very far in the brain. It penetrates maybe a few millimeters, uh, which is a small distance compared to the size of the brain. Meanwhile, cells from glioblastoma can migrate away from the tumor farther into the brain, and that's why surgery doesn't completely treat it, and that's why gliadel doesn't completely treat it, because the cells can sort of outrun the drug. So we switched to a, an approach called convection-enhanced delivery, where you put a catheter into the brain with the end of the catheter, and the catheter is just a long, narrow tube through which you can pump solutions. You put the tip of the catheter at the side of the tumor, and you use convection or fluid flow to create movement of fluid away from the catheter tip out into the brain. And scientists at the NIH had discovered that they could infuse drug solutions like this, and you could cover large volumes in the brain this way by just infusing over long periods of time. The problem with that NIH approach was that they were using just drugs and solution. And when you pump drugs in solution into the brain, 
they get cleared from the brain relatively readily. So they don't stay around long enough to really work well. So you have to be continuously pumping and you, and you can't have an infusion that lasts for you know many days or many weeks because of the risk of infection through the catheter. So we improved on that by just making the hypothesis that what if you infused not drugs in solution, but drugs that were in tiny, tiny nanoparticles suspended in solution? So imagine that dime-sized wafer is shrunk down to a tiny, tiny particle the size of a virus, but it contains drugs. And now if you infuse this solution with the nanoparticles in it, the fluid flows through the brain and it carries the nanoparticle along with it. When you turn off the infusion and the nanoparticles stay where they've flowed, in the brain, and they slowly release drugs. So this kind of combined the advantage of the gliadel system that I talked about earlier, which would slowly release drugs over time with convection-enhanced delivery, which allows you to cover a desired volume of the brain with uh, an agent. Well, that sounds really amazing and like an incredible project to be working on. So amazing work to you and your research group. Um, We are going to pause for a moment now to take a quick break. But when we return, Dr. Saltzman will continue discussing the groundbreaking work going on at his lab at Yale and also share some advice for our younger listeners. This is Raina Malhotra and you're listening to Teen Scientist. Thank you to the members of WDIY for making all the programming you hear possible. Becoming a WDIY member is the best way to support your listening and to ensure WDIY will be here for the next person in our community to discover. Make your membership gift today at 610-694-8100, extension 4, or WDIY.org. We couldn't be here without you. Welcome back to Teen Scientist. I'm your host, Raina Malhotra, and with me tonight is a Yale professor and researcher, Dr. Mark Saltzman. We just finished discussing his work with drug delivery, and I now want to continue by learning more about his research in tissue engineering. So Dr. Saltzman, I was reviewing kind of some of the amazing projects going on at your lab, and I was wondering if you could provide a quick, brief overview about your one recent research project about optimizing therapeutic revascularization by endothelial cell transplant. And what was the motivation behind this entire project? Yeah, I'd be happy. I'd be happy to. That's been a really interesting and fun project. And it's all been done in collaboration with a a friend and colleague of mine here at Yale named Jordan Pober. And um, Dr. Pober is an MD, PhD, meaning he's a clinician, he's a pathologist, uh, but he also runs a, a research lab. And he's one of the world's experts on the endothelial cell. And endothelial cells are the cells that line all the blood vessels in your body. So they're critically important for life and the function of organs. Because you think about it, they're lining all your blood vessels, so they sit right in between the flowing blood and the tissues of the rest of your body. And so they have to be very versatile in their function because they need to allow things like oxygen to penetrate so that oxygen can be carried to your tissues But they also specialize in recruiting if you have, a, say, a cut or an uh, area of inflammation in your skin. Then it's through these endothelial cells that uh, neutrophils and other blood cells come into your tissues and help with the healing process. So they're fascinating cells. But one of the major problems of tissue engineering or the idea that you could make replacement organs or regenerate tissue that's lost due to disease or 
or, or trauma, uh, one of the big problems is making tissue that has a functional vasculature, that has functional blood vessels within it. So we started 20 years ago to sort of optimize some of the ideas that Dr. Pober had been developing. And one of those ideas was the idea that you could transplant endothelial cells. So transplant endothelial cells back into a tissue, maybe a tissue that doesn't have enough blood vessels and so has become deprived of oxygen, a condition called ischemia. And so we developed ways to use polymers and extracellular matrix molecules like collagen and endothelial cells to form sort of transplantable gels that were filled with endothelial cells that could be put into a tissue. And over a period of several weeks, a functional vasculature would form in the tissue if you got the recipe for the gel right. So that's how we started. And what was the kind of criteria that you used to evaluate the success of revascularization in your experiments? What was like the metric for you to understand whether it was successful or not? Yeah, in the, in the first experiment, the idea was to create new blood vessels that would be perfused with blood. And so we measured blood flow in the area where we put the transplant. And uh, you can do that using a method called Doppler ultrasound, which is uh, in the, kind of a non-invasive method to look at blood flow and tissue. And we also then would cut thin sections of the tissue and do sort of classical histopathological methods. So just looking at the structure, counting the number of blood vessels, how many were they, how many branches did they have, how many, what was their diameter. So we used sort of brute force methods to uh, look directly in the tissue and ask how many blood vessels were there. And based on your experiments, what were the key outcomes or results that you saw in terms of improved blood flow restoration and tissue repair? So there, there are a couple of things we, we learned, hopefully more than a couple, because I did mention it was 20 years worth of work up to this point. But we early found that, you know, that you can improve the transplantation. And this was a finding that Dr. Pober had made earlier, that by changing the composition of the gel, by adding natural uh, extracellular matrix molecules, the kind of molecules that a blood vessel would expect to have in it in the end, and adding the right combination of those molecules was very important for keeping the endothelial cells alive and allowing them to sort of reform blood vessels. But we also found out that it was critically important to provide other kinds of cells that make blood vessels complex. You know, like arteries don't just have endothelial cells. They also have smooth muscle cells. They can contract and they have uh, very strong uh, walls. And capillaries are associated with other accessory cells called pericytes. And so as we developed experience with this transplantation, we started adding in other kinds of tissue cells that could help with the function of endothelial cells. We also use some engineering approaches to speed up the um, reformation of blood vessels, and I'll mention two of those. One was we made uh, tiny microparticles that contained a protein called VEGF, or vascular endothelial cell growth factor, and that helped speed up the um, process of vessel formation and we made tiny nanoparticles that you could get the, the endothelial cells to ingest. And these released uh, microRNAs, which uh, affected their uh, susceptibility to growth. And those kinds of innovations helped us to sort of slowly improve the quality and the speed with which we were making new blood vessels in the body. 
And how are you able to ensure the survival, integration, and functionality of the endothelial cells that you transplanted? Because when you take into consideration how complex vasculature and potential immune responses are, I'm just curious to see what kind of strategies you use to ensure that it was transplanted successfully. Yeah, that's a really great question, Raina. And that's really been uh, one of the, to me, the most exciting things that we've done. And this was mainly due to the expertise of Dr. Uh, Pover, who understands endothelial cell biology better than anybody on the planet, I think. So survival is a key, right? So uh, he found that you could do a small genetic manipulation on the cells by having them overexpress a protein called BCL2. And BCL2 promotes survival of endothelial cells by uh, diminishing apoptosis or natural cell death. So just a simple genetic modification of cells makes them form blood vessels faster, makes them form more functional blood vessels, and improves endothelial cell survival. But the real challenge to survival for an endothelial cell, remember I said it's the kind of the gateway cell between the blood and the rest of your tissue. And as you pointed out, that makes them right at the interface where they can be attacked by the immune system. So how do you make these blood vessel cells invisible to the immune system? And here, Dr. Pober used techniques where he would knock out key elements of the what's called the major histocompatibility complex in humans or the knockout key proteins that are involved with a cell's recognition by a host immune system. So you could make the cells by genetic manipulation invisible to the immune system of the recipient. So we published a couple of papers on that now, really remarkable. And this is very important for tissue engineering because in all likelihood, if you're going to have uh, an engineered tissue to replace, let's say, skin that gets damaged by burns or by uh, some other disease process, that might happen very suddenly. And you need a sort of off-the-shelf solution. You're not going to be able to use your own cells to grow new blood vessels. You're going to have to use somebody else's cells. So making them invisible to the immune system is really a key. Wow. Well, that's really interesting to hear about the amazing work that you're doing in the field of tissue engineering. I now want to quickly transition into some of the work that your research group is doing in regards to gene editing, which is kind of a hot new topic that a lot of people are interested in within the sciences. Um, So specifically, one of your projects that caught my attention was using synthetic nanoparticles for gene editing in the brain. So can you talk about this work and what motivated you to explore the use of nanoparticles for gene editing? So um, this work is a collaboration with another physician scientist at Yale named uh, Peter Glazer. And Peter is a physician and a scientist. He's uh, he's a radiation oncologist, so he's an expert in DNA uh, damage and DNA repair. He's also uh, an expert in genetics. And he developed uh, a novel, novel approach for gene editing, which doesn't use the common tools of gene editing. And if people know about gene editing, they probably first think about CRISPR-Cas9, the phenomenal discovery of these machines that can be used to uh, really efficiently edit genes. He uses a different approach than that, and it's one that's based on peptide nucleic acids. And peptide nucleic acids are molecules that look like nucleic acids, but they have the chemistry of a peptide. So they're very stable inside the body. They don't have, they're not susceptible to destruction by nucleases and other enzymes that break down nucleic acids inside the body. And he designs them in a way where they form a triple helix at a site in the 
uh, genome. And so I'll just, won't discuss the details, but just say he can make peptide nucleic acid that will bind to a site in a cell's chromosomes, a site that he defines. And when they bind there, they form a triple helix, which tells the cell that there's something wrong with the DNA in that area. And the cell's own DNA repair mechanisms now come swooping in, and they try to correct that problem. And at the same time, simultaneously, he delivers a piece of DNA, which is complementary to the sequence at the site where the triple helix is formed, except for small modifications. And because it's identical except for small modifications, the cell repair, the DNA repair machinery can form a different DNA sequence at that site. So that's gene editing, right? Taking a sequence that was had a amino acid or a couple of amino acids that were incorrect and reforming that with the correct amino acids in place. And so you have to deliver two molecules to do that, a peptide nucleic acid in Dr. Glazer's formulation, a peptide nucleic acid, and a DNA template. And he'd been working on this for years. He knew that it worked, but he didn't know how to get these molecules inside cells. And you've got to get them inside cells without hurting the cells in order to make the technology work. And so we met and we decided we would try packaging his ingredients in these nanoparticles that I've been making for cancer drug delivery and then feeding the nanoparticles to cells. And it turns out that it works uh, remarkably well. The cells will take up the nanoparticles, the PNA and the DNA will be released, they move into the nucleus and they perform the gene editing. And our first real success there was in a, a mouse model of a, the human disease, beta thalassemia, where the hematopoietic stem cells in the human or in the mouse don't make a proper form of uh, beta globin. And so your hemoglobin uh, is not uh, function properly. And uh, we showed that you could just give four injections of our nanoparticles to mice that had the human disease and they would be cured, and that cure would last for the lifetime of the mouse. And could you explain what the major challenges or limitations associated with gene editing in the brain in utero are, and how do the synthetic nanoparticles address these challenges, and then what advantages do they offer compared to other delivery methods? Yeah, so I'll make one more step here, because what I talked about all up to this point was, was doing gene editing in an adult mouse or a a teenaged mouse, but the other step forward was to try to apply it in utero in animals before they're born. And, you know, it's remarkable now what physicians can tell about the likelihood of a genetic disease in a fetus before it's born. You know, mother today will have her blood tested for fetal DNA, and they can diagnose many diseases like beta thalassemia, sickle cell disease, or cystic fibrosis in the first, you know, few months of pregnancy. But in most cases, there's nothing you can do at that point, right? You can't uh, do anything. But we'd like to think that one day you could take these gene editing tools and you could apply them during fetal life so that the baby would be born with normal genes. Instead of the cystic fibrosis gene, they'd have a normal CFTR gene. Instead of the sickle um, gene, they'd have normal beta-globin gene. So we've worked with a pediatric surgeon named Dave Stittleman, who's a specialist in fetal therapies, and he can do injections into fetal mice very early in development. And we tested this same approach that I just described in adult animals 
in utero for animals that would have had beta thalassemia and found that we could correct their gene and they're born with normal hemoglobin levels. That's pretty remarkable and shows kind of, there's sort of three levels of technology there, right? There's the, there's Dr. Glazer and his gene editing uh, molecules. There's us and our nanoparticles. So we find ways to package complex molecules so they can be delivered even safely in a fetus. And then there's Dr. Stittleman who employs all kinds of technology to safely uh, treat during fetal life. So I'm very excited about the potential for this. But of course, the other part of the question you asked is how do you know that it's safe? And with all these gene editing uh, approaches, the thing that you're most worried about is what people would call editing sites that you did not intend to edit. And that was a real problem with early CRISPR-based approaches is that because it uses an enzyme and because the enzyme isn't always targeted perfectly to the site that you want to edit, sometimes the enzyme would make an edit in the wrong spot. And of course, that could be devastating. And you have to be very, very sure that that's not happening. In our work so far, we've been pleased to see that with the triplex-forming peptide nucleic acid approach, we see very few off-target changes. And that, I think, is one of the big advantages of our approach over the CRISPR-based approaches. Well, that sounds amazing, and I appreciate how in-depth you went in explaining the, the safety behind your work and the targeted gene modification, which was interesting to hear. Now, before we wrap up, I want to circle back to your experiences as an explorer, researcher, innovator in this field. So starting off, maybe easy, hard, it depends on how easy this is for you to you know, think about, but what was the biggest highlight of your career? You know, the, the, what brought me into being a professor was, was I, I, I liked research. I thought I had a facility for it, but what I really wanted to do was teach. And I wanted to teach in the classroom and I wanted to teach in the laboratory because that to me is the most rewarding thing that someone can do is to help another human being find what's interesting to them and help them on the way to uh, having a successful and um, rewarding career. And that was what brought me into uh, university uh, life or kept me in university life for my whole career. And so that's just uh, an introduction to the biggest highlight of my career. It was on my 60th birthday. Some of my former students uh, threw me a big birthday party, and they uh, had a scientific symposium that was sort of dedicated to the work that I'd done and the people that I had helped uh, mentor. And it was amazingly emotional and um, really a, a rewarding experience. Yeah, absolutely. And now looking at the other side of things, what was the biggest challenge or hurdle that you've had to face during your career and how were you able to overcome it? The biggest challenge, and this will sound uh, ridiculous, but even though I wanted to be a teacher, I hated public speaking. I was terrified of it. And I avoided it. When I was in high school, I avoided it. When I was in college, I avoided it. When I was in graduate school, I was still avoiding it. And I realized about halfway through graduate school that I couldn't be a teacher, I couldn't be a researcher unless I learned how to communicate with people. And um, so I had to overcome this sort of really crippling fear of standing in front of a room and talking to people. And I would say I'm not the only one that has this fear. And I know that because I've shared that with thousands of people now, and I know that many, many people relate to that. 
And I would just say, you know, you got to face it head on. Uh, you got to give yourself a break. You're not going to do it perfectly at the beginning. You might not be satisfied, but you practice and you try and you try again and you'll get better and everybody can do it. It really is a, something that can be learned and mastered. And uh, I feel like I've mastered it now, but that fear uh, never goes away. Um, I'm anxious right now as I'm speaking to you, and but it's not preventing me from doing it. Absolutely. And I'm really glad you brought this up because I feel like oftentimes there can be, you know, misconceptions about research only being working in the lab or writing papers. But I think it's just as important to effectively communicate your results and communicate the work you're doing in order for people to actually understand what's going on. So I think it's an, that's an important kind of um, skill to have as someone working in the sciences. It's, a, it's essential. Yeah, it really is essential. You can't People won't come to work with you. People won't want to collaborate with you unless you're able to communicate what it is that you can do. Definitely. And that's that's yeah. the goal of a program like this, just so we can bring a voice to young researchers so they can understand the importance and significance of effective communication of research. So, yeah, I think it's a valuable thing that you just shared. Now, from someone who's been both a mentor and a student, what advice would you give to our listeners that are interested in this field of science? Well, I think, you know, it's really an, an amazing time. Uh, and, and the last, you know, 30-some years that I've been doing research, it's been an amazing time, especially as an engineer who's interested in medicine because of all the new findings in biology, particularly human biology. And, you, you know, you look at, at any newspaper and almost every day there's some fascinating new finding about a human disease that's going to someday lead to a cure. And um, it's going to take biomedical engineers, people that really want to solve problems, to take these findings, these scientific findings, and make new therapies. I really believe that. And I think the speed at which new facts are being found is accelerating. And it really takes, I think it's going to take people that know how to synthesize information from various fields and put it together to create new solutions from all these facts. And those people are going to be engineers. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that piece of advice. Now, lastly, before we wrap up, could you share with our listeners where we can go to learn more about you and your career? Is there a website or page that you have with your research information on it? Yeah. Yes, there is. So my, uh, my lab research group, you can find our, our, our web pages. Saltzman Lab, S-A-L-T-Z-M-A-N-L-A-B, all one word, dot Yale dot E-D-U. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Saltzman, for taking the time to be with us today. It's been so fascinating to hear about your knowledge and expertise in the field of biomedical engineering. It was such a pleasure to speak with you, so thank you. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Raina. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in today for WDIY's Teen Scientist. I'm Raina Malhotra, and I'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this program, please go to WDIY.org or the WDIY app to share or become a WDIY member.